Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're getting ready for Hanukkah, and there's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, uh, there's sort of a, an, an interesting question, which is, can you, at, at what point, you know, tshuva, tshuva, which is unfortunately uh, translated as, as repentance, it's, I think, one of the more horrible English translations of a, of a Torah uh, and divine concept. Tshuva means return. And, um, you know, it's the most beautiful thing in the world because it's an act, it's an act of dvekas. Dvekas means to, to cleave to, to God, to be attached to God. So one of just the aspects of being attached to God is if anyone does anything that, that is beneath them in terms of their, their speech or their activities or their thoughts, whatever it is, they have this ongoing opportunity, which is part of this greater ongoing relationship with God, to just to repair it and to just reattach themselves. And um, not that we're ever not attached, you know. I mean, one of the pieces of imagery that I always flash on is in, in, in the 12 Steps program, there's this concept of falling off the wagon. But in Torah, if someone falls off the wagon, you fall onto another wagon. So you're never off the wagon because... God encompasses all of reality. So there's, you, wherever you are, you're always amidst godliness. That, that's, that's, that's just the simple truth of existence. Um, so, and yet, in very, very extreme cases, in very, very extreme cases, you have something where God can actually take away someone's free choice. And this is a very complex and very, very deep area of discussion. But the one classic place where this is pointed to is with Paro, with Pharaoh. And it says that God hardened his heart. And what does that mean that God hardened his heart? Um, so, the simple way of learning it is that God took away his free choice. But that's not actually the way the Ramban understands it, which I think is the, the clearest and most accepted um, understanding of what was going on. Now, this is the first part. This is the first part of Pharaoh's sort of like, um, sort of downward slide. <clears throat> so what does it mean to have your heart hardened and yet your free choice preserved? So the way it was explained to me is that imagine someone puts a gun to your head and tells you to do something or they'll shoot you. So do you have free choice? Maybe you do, but not really. More or less your free choice has been taken away, because you're so coerced at that moment, you, you don't really have free choice. So the plagues, as they were devastating Egypt, essentially were like a gun to the head of Pharaoh. They more or less had taken away his free choice. So by God hardening his heart, what God was actually doing was leveling the playing field so that, so that he was inured to the gun pointing at his head. He didn't care about the plagues. So by, by making him even more selfish and insensitive to the effect of the plagues on his people, interestingly, his free choice once again becomes restored. And he can do what is in his heart to do. What he truly wants to do. And yet, so you see God hardens his heart, thereby preserving his free choice, and he's choosing the wrong thing every single time. You know, so it's sort of like 
All right, but then toward the end of the process, it says God just took away his free choice. Now that's really, that's, those, that, these are historic lows in terms of a person's behavior. That someone should have their free choice actually taken away from them. So, there's a, someone who just left the world recently, and it just sort of reminds me of this a little bit, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, you should rest in peace, but he brought a tremendous, tremendous wave of, of disbelief in, in God and, and atheism to the world. And one of the things that he said was, people wondered, on his deathbed, is he going to recant, do tshuva, acknowledge that there is a God? I mean, it seems to me that anyone who's um, an honest, open-thinking, intellectual person has to acknowledge the possibility that there's a God, you know, and, and that there's a soul and that there's an afterlife. I mean, that certainly is a very credible scenario. Let's forget about the fact that it's the truth for a moment. Just, if you just think about the world and all the rest, and if you think about all the advances that are being made in all the sciences and physics and energy and all the rest, I mean, it, 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 there's certainly a, a credible thesis to saying that this energy of my life force has a continued existence outside my body. I mean, this life force is being emitted from me all the time, so why shouldn't it endure? I mean... Again, even not approaching it from a, from a religious standpoint, just from a, from, a, from a scientific standpoint, there would seem to be a, a place to believe that, that there is some form of afterlife, whatever that is. So this person said that if I say that there is a God or recognize it on some sort of level, on my deathbed, that no one should believe it. That these are the words of a frightened creature. Right? So it seems to me, again, making this parallel with Paro, which occurs to me, I don't know if you'll agree with the connection, but it's almost as though this great act that he could have done, everyone who wanted to... In other words... He, he invalidated the effect that it would have on a mass number of people. Because everyone would jump to say, no, this is exactly what he warned us against. He warned us against this type of thinking. He doesn't really think this. He's still an atheist to the end. He's still a denier to the end. So it's almost as though, it's almost as though he had done so much harm during his lifetime that this last moment of redeeming himself, really, kind of, he arranged himself to, to have removed from him. And yet, what's the, what's the greater truth? The greater truth is that Hashem recognizes you as you are, at all times, at any moment. You know, one of the things that I heard from Rabbi Berger from Isha Torah, that sort of really changed the way I, I, I think about, you know, our relationship with God. He, he sort of set out a, a principle in relationships. He said that a relationship is determined by the one who is less involved in the relationship itself. So, meaning to say, 
Let's say you call someone every day, and they return your call once a month. You don't have an everyday relationship, you have a once a month relationship. Because the relationship is being determined by the one who is less involved. So, what he was saying is that, extending this in terms of our relationship with God, God is phoning us every single moment. Just by virtue of the fact that we're alive and we're breathing, the phone is constantly ringing. So there are people who think that, you know, I'm so, like, I can't even, how am I going to connect to God? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to go to synagogue. This, I don't, when's the next holiday? I don't even know. Like, I've got a Jewish calendar from 1975 over here. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. You know, or whatever it is, when's Yom Kippur? I, but the reality is, is that the phone is constantly ringing. It never stops ringing. So it's just a question of picking it up. Because who we are at that moment is what's being recognized by God. And if we have a desire in our heart to connect, then that in itself is is awesome. You know, it's sort of like we, we don't have to apply for a relationship with God. Like sort of like you gotta fill out an essay, one paragraph essay, you know. You know, why why should I why, why should I listen to your prayers? <laughs> you know, please include current credit card numbers and, you know, your last five jobs. <laughs> I need a reference. Am I going to listen to you, pay attention to you? You know. All right. You know, just in keeping with this whole deathbed kind of notion... I, I was thinking about my own deathbed, and that's, that's one of the things that absolutely changed my life. And I remember thinking about it really clearly on a, on a midnight bus from, Par- from Amsterdam to Paris, actually. And, uh, and I just thought to myself, you know, I, I had certain goals for myself. One of them was keeping Shabbos. And I thought to myself, you know, the real me, the real me is, is the me that's going to be lying down on my deathbed. Because how I feel in my 20s or my 30s or whatever it is, is not going to be most, most, most meaningful to me at that moment. It's like how I feel at that moment is going to be most meaningful to me at that moment. And, and I want to be proud of myself at that moment. You know, because... You know, I knew someone, someone famous, when I was growing up. He lived in my building. I won't mention his name, but he had, he had a, uh, an enormous bestseller. It's still considered one of the classics of American literature to this day. One of the all-time classics, actually. And uh, it took him like seven years to write that book and had an enormous success, and never matched that success afterwards. And he wrote several more books. Never matched that success. And I always thought about, like, that that must be hard. It must, you know, there are people who never try to put their self in the minds of celebrities or people who have had great accomplishments. Because they think, ah, he got that, that's plenty. You know, you should be happy with that, you know. 
But there are a lot of people who have that, fill in the blank, and then live decades longer trying to duplicate that or top that and never are able to. And that's, that can be psychologically very devastating. You know? So, so anyway, at a certain point, one's past accomplishments aren't that meaningful to someone on a here and now emotional basis. They just aren't. That's why continued growth and searching for what's most important in life is so important. It's because then, once you tap into the fact that we have these souls, and that there's this great mission in this world, which is basically to complete the world, to bring this world to a level of perfection, and that God is aiding us, and that everything that's going on in the world is that story. That is the story of the world. That is what's going on. That's what's transpiring. God is giving us opportunities to fix the world. That's what it is. There's a destiny to this world. And we're all incredible key players. You know, I remember hearing this, that at a certain point, I don't know how long ago this was, maybe 10, 15 years ago or something like that, in England they were doing some sort of survey about people's religions and everything like that. And like a crazy percentage, even if it's a small percentage, if it was like 5%, 3%, even if it was 3%, whatever it was, a meaningful percentage of people put down as their religion on this thing, Jedi warriors, Jedi knights, you know, from Star Wars. And, you know, in, on, on some level that actually makes a lot of sense, since, since religion no, real, no longer really has a grip on popular culture anymore. So people are massively influenced by any compelling um, portrayal of good versus evil. And so, you know, you have Luke Skywalker, right? And the whole Jedi mission and everything like that. And then you have Darth Vader who's in black. He's the bad guy in black, right? Forget about for a moment that the stormtroopers were in white. I mean, we could, <laughs> we could, we could darshan that. Lovin, lovin means white. But anyway, we can save the dresses for someone who's going to write a, a gloss on Star Wars. But anyway, that aside... It's, it's not so ridiculous that people would embrace something like Star Wars to the extent that they have and as deeply as they have because it's a very compelling portrait of good versus evil. And that taps into people's understanding that there is something going on in this world. So it hit me at one point, you know, when they were putting out the next three movies, you know, first they put out the first trilogy, right? And when the next one was coming up, I mean, I'll tell you how eagerly it was awaited. There was a little graphics box in USA Today, which was the countdown to the number of days before the new Star Wars opened, right? So this was national news. This was a very, very big deal. And if you went up to someone and said, what is the greatest thing that could have possibly have happened? They might tell you that this new film would be as good as the last three. Right? That's probably the most I could hope for. Then you say, well, wait a second. What if it were actually better? What if it were the best one yet? They'd probably, like, tremble and fall to the ground. You know what I mean? Just the concept itself would be so amazing. Even better. Okay, they were all, I think, massive disappointments. I think 
for the most part. But anyway, what if you then said, what if all of this were real and you yourself are actually a Jedi Knight? And you've been charged with actually saving the universe. But you want to hear something crazy? That is actually what's going on. The greatest possible version of this that could be true, the greatest possible version of this is actually the truth. It's actually going on. That's what we're doing. That's who we are. Okay, so none of it is Star Wars. It's not Star Wars. But in terms of the cosmic, epic sense of what we're involved in and what our activities are, it is what it is. So, so, so recognizing that, then, you know, you can maybe get a good job or get an award or whatever it is, and all that's fantastic, and I, I wish it on all of us, believe me. It's, it's all great. But in terms of what's going to endure for, like, the decades of our life till we reach a ripe old age, it can't be, it can't be. I mean, I reject this entirely as a premise, as an even possibility, that God structures our life so that the most meaningful parts of our life occur in our youth or our early, middle, middle age, and then basically we're out to pasture. That can't be. That would be the most inefficient way of structuring creation. Just for everyone, then you just, and then you check out. That can't be. It simply can't be. Which means that that part of life that happens has to have a meaning and an even deeper meaning. It has to. So then the question is, what is that? And recognizing that, and if that's the ultimate truth, the, early, the earlier one can recognize that and tap into that and devote themselves to that, the better off we are for our entire life. You know, it, it just, I'm just, just trying to think logically about this. So in terms of my own life, my own deathbed confession, so to speak, I was just thinking about, like, you know, I'm happy now and everything like that, and I feel accomplished now, and that's great. But are these same feelings of satisfaction going to transfer over when I'm 80 or whatever it is, lying and thinking about who I am and what I've done? And I, I, I thought to myself, I really, at some point in my life, I really want to start keeping Shabbos. And that really kind of, just kind of putting myself on my own deathbed, oddly enough, and you know, not in a morbid way, but just thinking realistically, that's something that really kind of uh, changed the path of my life. And um, and then and then we are who we are, you know. I tell you something. There's something else in the news this week, and again, I don't want to mention any names or anything like that. But I heard in the name of the Kutzkarebi something, which is that he was reported to have said, I'd rather be with someone who didn't daven today at all than to daven with someone who davened today only because he davened yesterday. Say it again. 
I'd rather be with someone who didn't daven today at all than someone who davened today only because he davened yesterday. So, you know, we talk about it. It's a longer teaching. Actually, it's not so long. This idea, it says, I always uh, forget where it says it, whether it's Sher Shirm Rabbah or Kahelis Rabbah. In one or the other, it says that one who grows old is like an ape. And the Kutzke Rebbe says what that means is an ape is, is a creature who imitates. And in fact, in English, even though that teaching was not written in English, even in English, this idea that an ape imitates has been recognized, I guess, throughout time. In English, we have the word, the verb to ape means to copy or to imitate. Um, he, to ape one's gestures or whatever it is, to copy. So the Kutzke Rebbe says that one who grows old is like an ape. That, that, that what is the act of growing old? It's not getting older, not adding on in years. It's that at a certain point, what happens to most people is they figure they got it right. And this may not be a conscious thought that someone has, but at a certain point, people settle into a certain pattern of normalcy for them. And then they spend the rest of their lives imitating who they were. They go through life imitating who they were. So this is how the Kutzke Rebbe understands this teaching. One who grows old is like an ape. So in other words, how does one not grow old? So it doesn't have anything to do with years. The way one grows, avoids growing old is by avoiding becoming an imitation of themselves. And that means to keep on learning. The only way to escape that process is by continuing to learn. And then when you continue to learn and when you continue to grow and then you realize that your life is the canvas that you're painting on, that this world itself is something that's in flux and is changing and it actually is impacted by our actions, whether we see it or not. You realize what's going on. So, so, this ties into this week's Parsha. I, this week's Parsha, Vayeshev, is, is, is really interesting. Because Yaakov, Yaakov has just gone through the hardest series of events. He's, he's had to disguise himself as his brother Esav to get the blessing from his father, risking being discovered by Yitzchak, his father, and being cursed, essentially, and dying. Like, then his brother finding out, and then he's got to run for his life because his brother resolves to kill him. His brother is like this great warrior and hunter who killed Nimrod, who is like one of the kings of the world or the king of the world. 
I mean, his brother was this fearsome guy and pledges to kill him. Where does he run to? I mean, you're in trouble if you have to run to love him for protection. I mean, that was like the seed of evil, basically. You know, and the Zohar says Lovin is like descended from the snake from the Garden of Eden, whatever that means. So you've got like, that, and that, that's where he goes for safety, right? And he's there for 20 years and Lovin like messes with him, changing his salary constantly, like oppressing him. And then he has to escape for, for his life from Lovin. Lovin wants to keep his children and his wife, like, and his wives, like he, he's got to leave alone. So He's able to get his family out. And then as soon as he escapes from Levin and makes some kind of like kind of like agreement with Levin to just be able to get out of there. He gets the news that his brother is waiting for him with 400 soldiers to wipe him out. I mean, that's got to go down as one of the all time worst days in history. Right. You just leave Levin and you find out your brother you know, you're thinking maybe 20 years he's feeling he's forgotten about this. Oh no, not only hasn't he forgotten, he's there with 400 soldiers. So that's like, then he's got to wrestle with an angel, the angel of Asaph, and then he's got to bow down to Asaph, and, and then his daughter is raped. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Okay, that's all the background to this week's Parsha. Then it says, he settled in the land of his father. Alright? And then the, the Sutton, like the heavenly accuser, says, well, we're just getting started. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean you're settling, are you settling down? You want tranquility? You've got the whole next world and you want that level of peace in this world as well? And then, boom, comes the whole story with Yosef and the brothers. Right? Where he's missing his son, which basically, he mourns for 22 years, something like this. I mean, prophecy leaves him. I mean, also, he understood from prophecy, basically, that, that basically all of his family has to be intact. And now he's basically told that that's not the case anymore. So he thinks that he's basically blown his entire life. And not only has he blown his entire life, but he's blown the mission of Yitzchak and Abraham. So, I mean, just in terms of like the trauma of losing Yosef, it wasn't just, I love my son, he's not here anymore. It was, my entire life is now a disaster, and everything that my father and grandfather, who transformed the entire world, I have now blown. So, I mean, the level of grief and stress and trauma that came down on Yaakov has to be appreciated. You know? It wasn't just his losing his son, although that would be enough to devastate anyone, obviously. So, so it's understandable. Let's just backtrack again to this, this thing that he settled in the land, that he wanted tranquility. This is before Yosef. Right? It would make sense that you would want tranquility. Now, I, I'd like to... This is my own kind of my own drusha, my own interpretation, but I just want to put it out there. Vayeshev has the root for the, in Hebrew for the word to sit. Okay, that's how you say sit in Hebrew. Here it's in the context of meaning settled. So it says that 
that he settled in his father's place, or he sat in his father's place. Now, interestingly, one of the laws of honoring your parents, of kibbutz Abe'im, is that you don't sit in your parents' chair. And by the way, that's, that's an important halakha. And I would, I would urge everyone to take that seriously. Because I think it's like one of those simple things that's not simple. Meaning to say that I think it communicates, especially to a child, in a very tangible way, that there are certain parameters. And that that creates this notion of respect. I'm not equal to my parent. Because that's their chair, not my chair. And it's a very simple but visceral reminder of what the hierarchy of the relationship with is. And of course, we know that the child-parent relationship parallels the person-God relationship. So you're actually imbuing your child with something very deep in terms of their greater understanding of themselves and God and all the rest. So there are, there are quite a number of, of teachings that, that sort of like get implanted in a child just from the simple thing of the chair. So the opening of this week's Parsha can be interpreted as Yaakov at this point after escaping Esav, this is pre-Yosef, right? That, Esav, that, that Yaakov desired to sit in the chair of his father. Because it says, using this same Hebrew word for settle, which also means sit, that he sat where his father had sojourned, where his father had lived, basically. So we just said that you're not allowed to sit in your father's chair. So he, he tries to sit in his father's chair, or he sits in his father's chair, and then this next wave of trouble hits him. So from that, I, I, I'd like to suggest the following. So many of us want to be other people, or we want what the other guy has. You know what, my father... My father also faced a lot of challenges. You know, I'm just trying to put myself in Yaakov's shoes for a moment. My father also faced a lot of challenges, but he never had to leave Eretz Yisrael. Yitzchak is the one of the, of the, of the fathers who, who stayed in Israel, in fact was commanded to stay in Israel his entire life. He never left. You know, it's true, he went through the, the Akedah, the binding, and, and all the rest, and there were, there, were, there were many challenges. But relative to his own life, there was a tranquility to his father's life that, that you don't see. You know, interestingly, just as a side point, uh, of the three um, sets of parents, meaning Abraham and Sarah, and Yitzchak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebecca, and Yaakov, Jacob and Rachel or Leah or Bill or Zilpah. Only with Isaac and Rivka do you, is there no dialogue between them in the Chumash. There's no recorded conversation that they ever had, which is the only one of the couples where you see that, which is interesting. You never see them talking to each other. And yet, you know, they had their whole lives together and they obviously had this, this great marriage. 
But interestingly, you don't see any dialogue recorded between them. Um, there was peace there. There was peace between them. And, um, and I guess Yaakov wanted that on some level. But if you try to live someone else's life, see, what does it say? Right after it says he settled in his father's land, or he sat in his father's chair, as I, as I want to learn it, which you're not allowed to do, the next wave of trouble hits. If someone tries to live someone else's life, to try to be someone who they're not, you get a wave of trouble. A wave of trouble comes. That's what it is. And, you know, you've got all sorts of examples of this. You know, because I work in Hollywood, you know, I sometimes maybe relate to the news of Hollywood slightly differently than other people. I don't know, maybe not. But one of the things that just came out, and again, I don't want to mention any names, but a big star um, announced a couple of months ago that, that while he was recording the last of this set of movies that he was in, enormously, enormously popular movies, um, that he had developed a drinking problem. And uh, because he just, it was just, the whole thing was just too hard. And, and he said that he was over it now, thank God, because he's a nice kid, you know. Uh, but he had done public with this. And I read the accounts, and, and what he said was something that really fascinated me, really touched me. He said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm putting in my own words, but he said, here I was like a young, good-looking movie star. Those weren't the words he used, but that's, that's what he meant. And I felt as though I should be living this lifestyle of parting and going out and being this sort of like, you know, this celebrity, whatever that means. And he was like, that wasn't me. And it was like I was at sort of at, and, and some level he was at war with himself because he felt that he should be playing this role in society as this celebrity playboy drinker, right? And it just went against his grain. And it took him a while to realize, you know something? I'm a movie star and I'm a homebody and that's okay. And that's okay. I shouldn't try to be someone who I'm not. Because when he tried to be someone who he's not, this wave of trouble came to him. Now let's look at Yosef for a moment. Because Yosef is tied in to all of this. Yosef is this incredible, incredible, incredible story. One thing that I noticed, by the way, if you, if you look at the name Yaakov and Yosef, and by the way, they say that Yosef was the greatest exemplar of Yaakov. So, you know, we, really we talk about the, the three Avos. We say, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. But if you have to take it to the next step, it would be and Yosef. That would be the next and, and it says that Yaakov learned with Yosef one-on-one, which he didn't do really at that time anyway with the, with the other sons, and that he gave him over all of the secrets. And so Yosef was really the one who was... And by the way, I heard this amazing explanation of that. Why did Yaakov give all of this special teaching, all this extra attention to Yosef? And 
What they said was that Yaakov knew that Yosef was going to need it. And in fact, if you think about how Yosef remains Yosef under the circumstances that he goes through, that's truly miraculous. I mean, that's like, he's in jail for, jail must have been the lowest place in the lowest land. He's there, I don't know for how long, something like, Twelve years. Twelve years, yeah. Ten years plus two. Twelve years in an Egyptian prison. Like, I can't even imagine what that was. But now, look at the name Yaakov and look at the name Yosef. Okay? Yaakov is Yud Ekev. The Yud meaning the highest emanations of godliness. Ekev means the word heal. So it's the top coming all the way down to the bottom. That's, that's Yaakov. Look at the name Yosef. Yosef, the last three letters of Yosef, if you just rearrange them slightly, just move the vav over one place, it's Yud Sof. Sof means end. So again, it's the same, it's the same name. Yud for Yosef, meaning the highest emanations of godliness. Sof meaning the bottom, the end. Going all the way down to the end. So Yaakov and Yosef both have the same name, if you think about it. Now, I want to talk about Yosef's beauty. And Yosef just being who he was. Because he was absolutely besieged by everyone. I mean, it says that he was so gorgeous that women would see him, and while they were peeling esrogim, I'm sure that has great symbolic meaning in terms of the context of this teaching, I don't know what it is exactly, but while they were peeling a srogum, that's a fruit, they would actually start cutting into their hands because their eyes would just be on him and they just would like, I don't know what it was, they went into some kind of trance and just start, you know, they kept on cutting but it was their fingers they were cutting. So, you know, you've got to be pretty good looking, you know, for that to be a fairly widespread phenomenon, Right? So, so he was lusted after by not just Potiphar's wife, but, but the man in the house as well. That's sort of a, a less reported fact. So he was really besieged by, by everyone. Plus, he was this great political figure. He was second to the king. You know, and he was in the lowest prison, and he was a slave, and he was, I mean, just... It's nuts what he went through. But anyway, what I want to talk about is his beauty for a moment. And being, being who you are. So, we're always reading the story of Yosef, always, at the time of Hanukkah. Just, that's just the way the calendar falls out. So there's this connection between Yosef and Hanukkah, which is very strong. Also, you should know that all of these chapters that we're reading right now all concern dreams. So we're all reading them in the month of Kislev. Now, according to the Sefer Yetzirah, the fixing of the month of Kislev is sleep. So interestingly, all of the Torah portions that we're really talking about dreaming right now are coming at the time, when the, of, the time of the fixing of sleep. Okay, so there are all these like things going on, you know, in terms of like, you know, the 
kind of the hidden fabric of reality right now. So, so this whole Greek thing. Now, the Jews in the heyday of Greece, the sages recognized the greatness of Greece. You should know. But, but Greece wasn't a complete vision of the world. Or it, 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 was, it was a little skewed in terms of how we understand the word world. But the beauty of Greece was clearly recognized and applauded to the extent that it actually says in the Gomorrah, and this isn't, as far as I know, true for today, but it was true back then because of the nature of the language of Greek, which I guess has changed somewhat in the modern usage. But a Greek Torah scroll, if you wrote the Torah in Greek, that was considered a kosher Torah scroll. Now, that's an amazing fact, because for, uh, there's so many halachas. What makes a Torah scroll kosher? That if it's missing one letter, and there's like 600,000 letters in a Torah scroll, if it's missing one letter, the entire thing is not kosher. Or if a letter is written in a way that it's not supposed to be written, the entire thing is unkosher. So can you imagine how exacting a Torah scroll has to be written in order to be kosher, and for the sages to say a Torah scroll written in Greek is kosher, that's an enormous statement. Not only that, but they talked about it being written in Greek with gold letters, and that again would be... So there are all sorts of levels that we'd have to understand to this. But nonetheless, there's a recognition here that, that the Greeks were happening in a very meaningful way. Now you have debates that are recorded in the Talmud between the sages of Greece, the sages of Athens, and, this, and the rabbis. And, and the, the, the questions that they asked themselves and the answers that they gave themselves, gave each other, are recorded. It's, they're very, very interesting. These showdowns, these intellectual showdowns. And one of the most telling differences between the Torah point of view and the Greek point of view comes during one of these occasions where they have a meal and some of the Greek philosophers get drunk during the meal and one of them takes a sword and stabs and murders the other one. And the rabbis like watch this and they're aghast. And they're like, we were just talking about like the deepest aspects of everything. And you get drunk and you murder someone like right openly in cold blood. And the... The, 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 the Greek was reported as answering, yeah, it's true, we were just philosophizing, and he said, when, when, when we're philosophizing, we're philosophers. But the rest of the time? No. You know, when, when I'm... So that, that, that type of compartmentalization in terms of a person's life and lifestyle and ideals is not acceptable. This is not, this is not the Torah perspective. And in fact, I think you see an interesting illustration of this in terms of mezuzahs. Because the mezuzah contains the Shema. The Shema is the oneness of God. The recognition that, that, the, that God fills the entire world. So some of us are one person in the bedroom and one person in the kitchen and one person in our office, right? 
And, and that level of compartmentalization in terms of our lives is acceptable. But the Jewish point of view is that, no, in each one of these categories of our life, there's the Shema, there's the oneness of God, there's the presence of God. It's all a unity. Now, that doesn't mean to say that, that all of us aren't works in progress, we're all works in progress, we all make mistakes, we all mess up. That's also true. But, but it should be making progress within the context of recognizing the oneness of God. That, that, that's what it is. And then any journey that we make is a healthy journey toward that at our pace. At our pace. But not that I have license to be one way in one situation and license to be another way in another situation. So, so this idea that while we're, that we're philosophizing, that while we're philosophizing, we're philosophers. Not the case. Now, I'm building to the point, and, and here, here is, because we're putting this in contrast to, to Yosef. And remember we said that we're always reading the, the Parshas of Yosef at the time of Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, of course, was the war against the Greeks. Now, the way you write the word Greece in Hebrew, I want to focus in on this because I think this is really something very special. The way you write the word for Greece is, in Hebrew, Greece is Yavan. Okay? So, Yavan is written like this. It's the letter Yud, which is a small straight line. Then it's the letter Vav, which is a longer straight line. And then it's the letter Nun Sofit, which is the longest straight line. So, if you think about it, it's actually a very beautiful, very elegant um, uh, uh, what would it be? Pic- visual, yeah. I wanted to say pictorialization. Is that that sounds like there's about nine syllables too much in that word? But um, you know, one of the things. Uh, anyway, so so again, you've got Yavan. Greece is a small straight line, a longer straight line, and then the longest straight line. And there's a, a level of I don't know if symmetry is the right word, but there's just a, there's a harmony in that. There's like a really beautiful thing going on, just in terms of the word itself. Okay. But we said that this beauty, which is a real beauty, and which the sages recognized was a real beauty, is a limited beauty still. Okay? Because it's not all-encompassing. Now listen to this. Yosef is the gematri of the word Sion. Sion is Zion, which means Israel, which means Yerushalayim. Okay? So, Sion, it says that the, that the word of God goes out from Sion. Right? So, so Sion rec- represents basically like the headquarters of the Jewish people and Jewish thought. Now, how do you spell Sion? It's taking the word for Greece, Yavan, that yud, that vav, that final nun, what we talked about, if you put the tzaddik, the letter tzaddik, in front of yavan, Greece, it spells tzion. And tzion is the gematria of the word Yosef, of the name Yosef. Meaning to say, and what did we say? That Yosef was one of the most beautiful people that ever lived. So now we're getting a deep insight into what the nature of Jewish beauty is. It's basically beauty seen through the lens of holiness. 
or righteousness. Because Yosef, who is the most beautiful person, his name is the equivalent of the word Sion. Sion is Tzadik in front of Greece. Taking all of the beauty of that and channeling it through one's personal refinement. See, one of the things that I find very striking is in scientific thought today, we talk a lot about the space-time continuum. Space and time, right? But if you look in, I think it's a Sefer Yetzirah, all of reality is boiled down to three components, and this is already thousands of years ago. Space, time, and soul. In other words, soul is the missing element. You need soul. No vision of the universe, of the world is complete unless you factor in soul. You have to. You have to. Otherwise, what you're dealing with is something that's partially true. But you know something? Something partially true can also be called incorrect. Because if you only, you know, we talked about it last week. What we don't want is intelligence. What we want is wisdom. Intellect is good, but wisdom is a thousand times better. Karl Marx was really smart. He was a million times smarter than me. Right? Cut to tens of millions of people murdered. I mean, what's a better idea than everyone should be equal? It's great. Tens of millions of people murdered. That, that's smart. We don't want smart. We want wisdom. And so, something that's partially true is, it's not enough. It's not enough. And, and you know something? We're, we're so... We're so bombarded with information. I mean, they call this the information age. We're bombarded by information. And, um, you know, it, it seems like the more you learn, the better Torah gets. You know, in terms of, if you think that this is a system of thought and, 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 and modes of behavior that has been put, that has been tested in every culture, in every time, throughout history, around the globe, in, in contradistinction between the culture of that age, the secular culture of that age, or the religious culture of that age, whatever it is, and the fact that it's still intact and still looking good, that's really meaningful. That's really meaningful. Talking about something standing the test of time. So... Shem should bless us that we should just light up the darkness and, um, you know, nothing, nothing lights things up more than love. And, um, and we should just trust. We should just trust that basically that we're part of this process and that it's unfolding and that God's running the show. And, um, you know, 
that's, man, I couldn't ask for anything more than that. Okay, have a great week.